Welcome to the Genre Wars Book Podcast, which exists to help you read wider and find great new books where you didn't expect them. We chat about the best stories from people's favourite genres with the authors who write them. I'm your host, Tim Hawken, and today I'll be talking hard sci-fi with Andy Weir. Andy is the number one New York Times best-selling author of sci-fi smash hits The Martian and Artemis. His next novel, Project Hail Mary, is being released on Star Wars Day today. May the 4th be with you. Andy's known for his realistic portrayal of science, smart-ass humor, and snazzy driving hat. Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> and it's it funny, is a snazzy I, driving hat. It is. I actually uh, I bought my own today just to make sure we're on oh, the same page. Oh, very nice. <laughs> I, I, I should have worn mine, but... Uh, of course, your listeners can't see us anyway. So. No, exactly, and, and mine won't go over my headphones. So um, I'll just I'll put mine to the side. But um, <laughs> so just on the on the hat, was that um, is that a conscious thing to build like a signature look? Like George R. Martin's got his kind of captain's hat. <laughs> you've got no, you've got- actually. Uh, no, um, the my deep love of well newsy hats as we call them here in the U.S. Um, my my deep love of those hats like predates my writing career. In fact, it, it goes all the way back to when I was like a teenager. I just I just really thought they looked cool, and I've always liked them. Yeah, and so I I, I just I wear them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then it kind of became my I don't know my zeitgeist or whatever. <laughs> it's your thing. I saw a photo of. Um of you online and it's like you know it's all about the hat with um neil degrasse tyson i thought it was quite hilarious <laughs> yeah um there there was a, a just the other day i was at an airport um and uh you know it, i mean literally just the other day so i had my mask on you know mm. and uh because um, covid and all that and so i'm wearing a mask that covers everything except like my eyes and I, I went to a bookstore to buy like a crossword puzzle book to have something to do while I'm waiting. And like people in the bookstore, like the bookstore clerk goes like, you're Andy Weir, aren't you? <laughs> like, <laughs> she, she could recognize me even with the mask on. And I'm like, oh, it's probably the hat. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is too funny. So yeah, you've definitely, you've created a signature there. Um, and so there obviously you've, you've, uh, You've been around around for a while now and really cemented yourself. The third book out. Well, um, you know, I'm getting on in years, but yeah. there's no need to be mean. <laughs> <laughs> and so you started you started yourself um, your career self publishing The Martian first on your website um, and then on Amazon, and then things really kind of launched from there. Um, and I would almost describe uh, Project Hail Mary as you know, the Martian on rocket fuel or astrophage. <laughs> and, um, on astrophage, so, very nice. Yeah. And so what, like, go, I guess going back to even before the Martian, what got you into writing in the first place and what were some of the, the early influences that I guess made you take the path of going down as a, as a sci-fi writer and particularly a, a realistic sci-fi writer? Well, I mean, so it, the very first part, I, I would say, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to write. I mean, I, I, I was writing, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever read um, uh, books by Beverly Cleary, like the, uh, you know, Henry and Ribsy or the Beezus and Ramona books. I don't know if they're popular outside the U.S., but um, they're children's books for, for little kids to read. And I was writing fan fiction for those characters when I was like seven. Okay. Uh, you know, they weren't 
they weren't really good stories, but uh, you know, I was writing them. I've always wanted to write. As a teenager, I was writing a lot of short stories. The Martian was actually my third full-length novel that I wrote. Huh. Um, you haven't seen the other two because they suck. <laughs> and you know, you got you got to be bad before you start to get good. Um, uh, as for science fiction, well, I was pretty much doomed to be a, a nerd from day one. My <laughs> my father is a particle physicist. My mother was an electrical engineer. And um, my dad was a huge sci-fi fan his whole life. He, he still is. He's not dead or anything. He's fine. <laughs> but um, he has, he had this, this bookshelf that was, I don't know, six feet high, three feet wide, maybe, maybe a foot deep. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, uh, two meters high, yeah. <laughs> one meter wide, and perhaps uh, 33 centimeters deep. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it was just jam packed full of all the science fiction books that he had ever owned because mm. man never threw away a book in his life. And um, he he loved science fiction. So I grew up reading his sci fi collection. And so he's a baby boomer. And so I grew up reading kind of one generation behind. So uh, I, you know, I was a, I was a teenager in the eighties, but I was reading books that were written in the fifties and sixties. So mm. I grew up in the, I don't know, for lack of a better term, reading the golden age science fiction novels. So I, I grew up reading uh, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, Clifford Simak. Um, those are, you know, those are the books that really kind of shaped my my view of what science fiction was. And that's kind of the science fiction I write, except for, you know, so some of them don't stand up so great. Some of them, uh, some of them ignoring the social stuff, which of course there's a lot of that where it's like, you know, it's a thousand years of the future and women are still, you know, you know, their job is to cook and clean, but um, mm. <laughs> you know, so some of them are pretty dated that way. Others, the technology, you know, didn't go the direction that the author was expecting. But for the most part, just the, the style of, okay, we're going to use real physics, real science, and we're going to just kind of extrapolate into what direction we can go. And, uh, and, uh, and also the general optimism that those books had which is uh, another thing I, I, I feel like science fiction has been largely taken over by this relentless pessimism mm. about the future. And um, that's kind of not how I see the future. And I base that on the past. If you look at the march of history in general, it's, it's just always better to be further forward in time. Mm. Anywhere, anywhere. If you pick two points 100 years apart, I guarantee you, you would rather live in the one that's later. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, 2020 was kind of a crappy year, right? For everybody. But uh, I'd rather be in 2020 than 1920. I've spent yeah. my whole life without ever seeing a no coloreds sign on a business window. And I've never once had a friend die of typhus, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's, um, there's there's um there's some great stats and I can't um is it Dan Pinker um who has some wonderful stats on just the quality of quality of living um that have gone up I over time know. um I'll 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 see if I can find it and link to it in the show notes it's a really phenomenal and he just talks it's he basically shows a graph of 
life expectancy, health um, outcomes, all this sort of stuff that just go go on a chart, and it just skyrockets as soon as the yeah. industrial revolution happens. And it's it really makes you stop and think and go, oh, you know, I'm a I'm a fantasy nerd as well, and I spent most of my childhood wishing I was around in the dark ages with a you know a helmet <laughs> on, riding on a horse, and now I just go, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that I now wasn't born in oh, that God. Yeah. It's like, hey, lucky you, you're born a peasant. You'll probably never go more than 20 miles from where you were born. And uh, you'll live to the ripe age of, I don't know, 40, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) Unless you're a woman, in which case you'll live to the ripe age of died in childbirth. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which is, yeah, it was like, it's crazy about the the statistics on childbirth and mortality rates. So we are very lucky. And so... That is definitely something that features in your writing is that sense of optimism. Um, third book now, and all three are following what I would call hard sci-fi. Just for people who who are listening who might not have heard that term, can you explain in short what that means um, and anything extra other than, other than um, the obvious that it's a bit more realistic than other sci-fi? Yeah, well, I consider hard sci-fi, you know, I mean, the general idea of quote-unquote hard sci-fi is that it's based on, that it, it is based on real-world physics or, uh, you know, everybody cheats a little bit. So I would say that any given science fiction, it deviates from real physics a certain amount. Mm. Hard sci-fi deviates the least. Sure. I mean... And so you could be like super hard sci-fi where it's like literally not a single physical law is broken. All the technology exists in real life or, or is something that could easily exist and stuff like that. And then the further out you go, you, you, you can have something like, okay, well, this is fairly hard sci-fi and that almost everything is real, but we have this one little MacGuffin uh, special um, bit of technology that someone invented and we, we extrapolate based on that. And then you go all the way out to like, you know, warp drives and lasers that you can duck out of the way of, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Sure. And so that's, um, that's much quote unquote soft sci-fi. Why they're called hard and soft I, I, I don't know where those terms came from. And my approach is, uh, yeah, to stick to, uh, to pretty much hard sci-fi real science. And, and the reason for that isn't because I think it's better than, than the softer sci-fi. It's just that's my particular style of writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, my favorite, my favorite science fiction property out there in all of fiction is Doctor Who, right? Mm. And that's about as soft as sci-fi gets. Like, it is just crazy ass. Like, physics has no part of this, right? But I love it, you know? So it, it's, it's not like I think that hard sci-fi is better. It's just, it's just my personal style. And, and, and also, I, I, I like it a lot, writing it a lot, because it's almost like cheating, Um in any given uh, story, whatever you're writing, it, it, even if it's a, a fantasy novel, a science fiction, wh- whatever it is, you need to explain to the reader the rules of this universe. 
you need to, you know, if, if it's a fantasy story, the reader needs to understand how the magic works, why the dragons live on that one mountain, all that sort of stuff. And if it's, um, you know, Star Trek, you got to explain, okay, well, this is how, you know, warp drives are what let us get from here to there. And they're run by, you know, they're modulated by dilithium crystals. So dilithium is very important. So you need to mine it. And, you know, you need to explain an exposition, the, the physical rules of your universe to the reader. When you're writing hard sci-fi, it's just the world we live in. It, it's, mm. it's, it's real physics. And you run into complications in science fiction when you make up your own physics, because then it starts getting extended, you know? So for instance, in Star Trek, um, there's the transporter. Well, that's cool. That's the beam them down, beam them up. But if you start thinking about the transporter, it's like, well, wait a minute. Okay. What's the range on that? Do I need ships at all? Okay. Well, hold on a minute. Can I use the transporter to make copies of anything I want? Can I make another me? And Mm if I can't and, and wait a minute and it starts getting into the weird philosophical things of, did I just die and a copy of me was made on the surface? And, and I have other questions, right? Um, but if you, in hard sci-fi, you're not making up any physics, you're not making up any science. So the, I can, I can find out as much about my, my genre as I want by just doing research. Mm-hmm. which is great. I'm like, okay, I want to know about, uh, you know, traveling at relativistic speeds. I didn't have to make up special relativity. I didn't have to make it. I didn't have to make up how the speed of light affects time dilation. I just need to look it up <laughs> mm-hmm. and do research. So, so does that ever come back to bite you? And just to give you a bit of a frame of reference, um, I put up on a, a photo on Instagram or a piece of art um, on Instagram the other day that had a, like a circular ring around Earth, and um, and had a little short story with it. And half the half the comments were like, "Hey, cool picture, great story." And then half the comments were like, "That would never work. You Earth can't have it, a ring." Yeah. yeah, this is why sh- your shadows over the equator, asteroid impacts would rain. This like, and it was really detailed. And I was like, "Wow, if I'm getting this from from this, I wonder how Andy Weir's <laughs> Reddit Reddit threads and and things are." <laughs> Um, has it ever come back to bite you or, you know, are you engaging with that anyway? Uh, of course, of course. You know, when I get something wrong, uh, so, uh, absolutely. Uh, when I get something wrong, I, I, I hear all about it <laughs> and then, um, and, but, uh, I don't mind at all because of two things. First off, that's just the nature of being a writer. And second off, more importantly, I set myself up for that by boldly claiming that I'm writing real science, mm. right? So I bring that on myself by by saying, hey, guys, all this stuff I'm writing, this could really happen. And someone's like, that can't. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, so yeah, I, 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 I accept that as that's, that's the, the price of doing business. I bring that on myself. And I don't mind. And I kind of like it, too, actually, because it's like, hey, if a reader of mine is invested enough to double check you know, the math, the mistakes I make generally aren't macroscopic, right? They're not mm. like huge and immediately obvious. It's like, well, wait a minute, this, 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 and this. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, it is great to hear that and, and know that people are really engaging on a, on a deeper level with, with the I got, work. I actually got one. So it, it, it you know, it's like, There's nothing like blatantly obvious with my things, but I get these really like detailed 
analysis questions, people are like, huh, hey, Andy, like, so I don't want to give away too much about Project Hail Mary, um, but you, you've you've read it mm, recently. Mm. And um, it's not giving away too much to say that there's a problem with the sun um, where the sun is dimming because of basically a, um, a, a space mold has infected it. It's like, it's not even a, it's not an intelligent life form. It's just like algae. It's like an algae bloom. And that mold reproduces by gathering uh, carbon dioxide from Venus. Mm. Okay, great. And one of my beta readers or one of the, one of the uh, arc readers said like, I'm not sure Venus has enough carbon dioxide to make enough astrophage to significantly affect the luminance output of the sun. Mm. And I was like, I don't know that either. Because <laughs> Venus is really small compared to the sun, right? Sure. And I was like, huh. Um, well, uh, screw you. Yeah. That's my answer. No, but, you know, <laughs> so it could be that, you know, but that's a fun one. Yeah, sure. It's like, and I'm sure at some point, if someone's listening to this or somebody just with the same thing, they might do the math and and figure it out. Well, I'll tell you what, if you want to do the math on that, astrophage are 20, uh, 20 picometers thick. So you've got all that Venus atmosphere, but just, uh, you know, how big of a 20 picometer thick shell can you make, you know, around the sun and what what level of, of dimming can that cause? <laughs> someone someone email me with the answer please that'll be amazing <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and so i guess uh another another feature of your writing and and perhaps hard sci-fi in general because it does seem to crop up um in other other authors works as well is um what a, a term that i only recently w- became familiar with thanks to ken lu another sci-fi writer um is competence porn. Oh, yeah and yes, so, competence form. And and absolutely. I mean, I'm sure for anyone who's read The Martian, um, you know, gets caught on Mars and manages to find his way home. Um, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not spoiling it for anyone right now. Um, but Yeah, I think at this point, anyone who hasn't read or seen The Martian, I think, you know, they, <laughs> yeah. I think we're past the spoiler warning thing you know uh, by the way everyone yeah by the way everyone uh you know uh rosebud was a sled (laughs) sorry to ruin it but uh too good so um like in terms of competence porn is that something that you just did automatically and and now are aware of it and really work to put it in because the new book, for example, Project Hail Mary has not one very competent um, characters, but two. Um, I don't want to, you know, I, I won't give too much away about Rocky, but. And so. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, I'll, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll bleep that out. Maybe I'll bleep that out. I don't want to give too much away. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, you you do have these two amazing characters that manage to to do some incredible things. Is that your way of escalating um, 
things in in your new work and and keeping things interesting um is it something the competence porn side of things is it something that you're um conscious of and, and work really hard to to make ex- extra satisfying um well it's not uh you know, you know for, so for the martian it's just a straight up survival story and i i wasn't thinking about it in terms of like oh yeah i'm gonna make this all competence porn i'd never heard that term before and um I'll, I was just like, okay, this is just a really resourceful guy. And, and yeah, that's the crux of the book is being really resourceful to survive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I didn't feel like I was amping it up or I, I didn't feel like I had some responsibility to, Ooh, I got to double down on this for project Hail Mary. It was just, um, I, what I, what I like to do is put, you know, have a scenario and then set it going and then see what my characters would have to do. Mm. And um, if anything, I mean, the, the stakes are a lot higher in project Hail Mary. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I amped up the competence porn too much. Just a, you know, a couple of scientists trying to solve a, a very serious problem. It's just that in the Martian, it's like one guy who might die. And in uh in Project Hail Mary, it's uh, you know the entire population of Earth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah slight, slight increase in stakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, uh, do you have a sense for why people love that sense of competence so much in stories? I was sort of trying to put my finger on it, and I was like, maybe it's because we all wish we were competent like that at times when we're going through struggles. Because it's not like. Um, any of your characters sail through and are so competent that there's no issues. Um, right. You, you yeah, know, there's sometimes they they're competent. They, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, what do you think it is in, in that, that, that is so satisfying for readers and for people to read, to, to read or listen to? Well, there's a few things. Um, first off, there is something very fun and satisfying about watching or experiencing people who are really good at what they do, doing what they do. Mm. I mean, that's why, that's why sports is so popular. I think, you know, I, people like watching, uh, you know, sports because they're like, these are, these people are the best in the world at what they do. And now you get to watch them do it. And I don't know about you, but I, I love, I love watching YouTube videos of people doing, you know, things like, Oh, here's a master clockmaker and he's putting together a clock. And I'm like, this is really interesting mm. because this, this person is really, really good at what they do. And it's neat to watch them do that. So I think there's a certain satisfaction in watching someone who's really good at what they do, ply their trade. Um, the other thing I, I think is it's almost like it, it's a little bit, it, it hits that same part of your brain that uh, is hit by murder mysteries or whatever. It's, you're like, okay, I don't know who did it. And then at the end, the detective, you know, figures it out and explains it. And you're like, oh, I had those clues all along. And oh, I could have connected them, but I didn't. Mm. This character is smarter than me. And, and that's, that's, there's a certain satisfaction in that incompetence porn, whereas you say like, I don't know how he's going to get out of this one. There's no way he can survive. And mm. then he does. And you're like, oh, and I knew about all that. I knew he had this. I knew he had that. I knew he had that. And he put them all together and came up with a solution. Like I had the information to come up with that solution and I didn't. There's something that I, I think most people, definitely me, I love it when a book outsmarts me. 
Mm. I, I absolutely love it when I when I when I cannot predict what's going to happen, and then it happens, and I'm like, "Oh, that's so cool! I did not see that coming." And there's yeah. something just very satisfying about that. And I, I, I totally agree because it's it's a weird way, like in a weird way, if if I guess the twist, the plot twist in a book or something, I'm I'm disappointed, which is unusual because yeah. you'd think you'd be satisfied with yourself. Um, you know, I got it. You'd be feeling smug, but uh, you know, actually, it's the other way around. We love to be surprised. Yeah, yeah we like to be wrong, or not just wrong, but it, it it goes into again. It's like, oh man, all the information was there for me to to figure this out, but only Hercule Poirot was smart enough to get it from the clues that that we were given, and and uh, and it makes you love that character even more. Mm, mm. And so speaking of competence, I think um, a lot of people like myself who read the, the finished product of, of your books think you're an absolute genius and like, how does he know all this stuff? Um, just, not to- just the people who haven't met me. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just about to say, not like not to disabuse any strangers of, of, the, of the illusion, but um, like what's the reality there in the sense that like how much research goes into a book? How much feedback do you have? Um, like what are the nuts and bolts that get tinkered with before this, this shiny kind of st- polished story comes out at the end? Well, tons of research, of course, enormous amounts of research. Um, people think, uh, funny, and, and the research is always just Google. I mean, mm. people think I have this Rolodex or contact list for your younger listeners um, full of uh, full of NASA personnel and astronauts and astrophysicists <laughs> and stuff. And what's funny is I actually do, like I actually do know those people and could call them, but Google gives me answers much quicker. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's good. And and the other thing is I really enjoy research. I like looking this stuff up. I like speculating. I like, ooh, I'm going to design this. You know, I'm going to figure out that. And, oh, what if this, that, and the other thing? And, oh, okay. And I go way down the rabbit hole researching stuff. And then um, uh, when I come back out of the rabbit hole, I'm like, okay, so here's the thing I needed to know. Here's the small, here's the 0.2% of what I just you've read about that I'm actually going to have to exposition to the reader. Mm. And yeah, certainly I look, I, I look smart, but you know, what you read in like five minutes, you know, if you read a chapter and you read this one section of a chapter and it's like got a lot of clever science in it, you know, that took you five minutes. It took me like a month. <laughs> mm. So anybody can look clever when you have an infinite amount of time to prepare. <laughs> Exactly. And so like, I suppose that's a major challenge too, is taking that research and distilling it down into something that's still engaging and won't lose the reader's interest and is, is still pressing forward with the story. Um, do you, do you have that's any the biggest challenge for me? Yeah. And so have you learned any, any tips or tricks to, to help you do that? Or is that generally yeah. feedback from editors or how, how do you look at that side of things? Well, so yeah, I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. One of the, the, my, my, my big trick, ta-da, is that like science is oftentimes the antagonist and the solution, right? Mm. Usually it's like, okay, here's this problem and now they need to solve it, which means, and, and I like to stick to real science. And so the end result is I end up 
having to do an, a large amount of exposition to the reader, explaining how this science works so that they can understand, you know, what the problem is and how the solution ends up saving the day and why the solution is clever. Okay. Problem is, I don't want my books to read like a, a textbook, right? Mm. Or a Wikipedia article. They have to be interesting. And so uh, a few a few tricks is number one, I only explain as much as they need to know. I try not to go too far off into the weeds. It's like, okay, here's what you need to know to understand this thing that's going on, but I don't need to go any further. Um, uh, so that's number one. But number two is the, the, the big deep secret. Don't, don't tell anyone except for literally everyone who listens to your podcast. <laughs> um, uh, a reader, uh, exposition is boring. Nobody likes it. Okay. Mm. Nobody likes uh, writers. Don't like writing it. Readers don't like reading it. It's like paying your taxes. It's like a thing you have to do so that you can enjoy the rest of the story when you're reading it. But you just kind of like, all right, okay, I get it. Yada, yada, yada. Um, but here's what I found. The reader will accept and allow any, they'll forgive you for any amount of exposition. If it's funny, they mm. will forgive you anything. If you make them laugh, that's all you got to do. So if the exposition is funny or if it's phrased in a funny way, even if, you know, then they'll, they'll just, they'll just read exposition all day long if you're making them laugh. And so that's, that's what I try to do. I make it funny. I, I frame the exposition as conversations between smart asses or, you know, in the Martian, there's all sorts of exposition and Mark Watney has a very comedic voice. He's just a complete smart ass about everything. So people will read it and they'll just, they got no problem with exposition if it makes them laugh. Yeah, it's so funny. there's my secret. Yeah, it's it's um it's interesting because uh, I think there's an author Brent Weeks who writes fantasy books, and no one like no one that I know except for maybe me reads the acknowledgments at the end of a book. Um, <laughs> but his are hilarious. They're really really funny, and so I get to the end of the book, or I, like often I'll just I'll start reading that to to start just to have a little chuckle, <laughs> and it's like. Yeah. Normally, they're the, the driest, most boring thing. So it totally makes sense that when people you're, like to laugh, you know, yeah, yeah, just make things engaging and interesting. Um, yeah, I, I have a saying. Um, I I made it up. I'm very proud. No, it's when when people uh, when people ask me things, uh, it, it's it's exposition is is an I, I hate it. I hate trying to sneak it in. I hate when I have to explain a lot of things. And and the thing, I, when people ask me for tips on writing, one thing I always tell them is like, you've got to keep things moving along. Mm. You you can't just, it, it, it would be really nice if you could just get all of the exposition for the entire book out of the way and then go into pure action. But you can't do that. And so my one one bit of advice I have for people is, don't start a book with a description of a mountain range. That's <laughs> like, just like, you know, it's like when people, because it, it, it's very tempting to start a book by, you know, coming into your world slowly and then zeroing in on your kingdom and then on your character and stuff like that. You'll lose, you'll lose the, you'll lose the reader before you've even gotten to the city, you know? <laughs> and so like with, um, with say, for example, The Martian, which started off being serialized on on your website, mm -hmm. was that how 
how adjusted was that in between, for example, publishing that yourself on Kindle and then moving to a publisher? When you talk about exposition and, and things like that, were you getting feedback from readers in a, and correcting course as you went? Um, what was the process like that for that book? Well, at the time, it's funny. Um, yeah, it was a serial, and I were I was writing uh, like two other serials at the time too. So I just kind of work on whichever one I wanted. There, mm. there was all just labors of love. So, and um, when I got feedback from readers, I would I would go back and and correct things if I had errors. So I had about three thousand people on my mailing list, and um, yeah, they they'd tell me when there were mistakes like science mistakes in the Martian and I'd go back and feed them. So it was great to feed them, fix them. It was like having uh, 3000 fact checkers. Um, Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't change like plot or character or stuff like that, but I would, I would, I would correct, um, you know, factual errors. You bet. (laughs) Mm. And so obviously that changes a lot. Like, do you have a, um, a close relationship with your editor now in terms of them pulling out things? We're lovers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Julian would appreciate that. I said that about him. Um, (laughs) um, yeah, my editor and I get along, uh, great. Uh, but, um, yeah, obviously since I've lost that, that kind of like, you know, large audience during the development of the book, I have to be, what I try to do is I put a lot more effort into fact checking myself. Mm. And then at, at, at the publisher, they usually, um, uh, to, to do, uh, the editing, the, the, uh, copy editing on my book, they, they usually, they have this, uh, they have a copy editor that they like to use and, and she's like very technically savvy. Like she's very scientifically knowledgeable. Mm. So she also like, she doesn't just like, okay, there's this area. She also is like, well, hold on a minute. I think you may have gotten the gravity equation wrong here, you know? Yeah. So it's really cool. It is. Yeah. And so, um, in terms of in terms of just um, segueing a little bit to to other books, and I love to to get authors to give recommendations. Um, I mean, I I hardly recommend your books, but in terms of other books that you love in maybe hard sci-fi, but also just the general sci-fi genre, that if people aren't massive sci-fi readers and you were trying to tempt them across to, to the dark side, so to speak, um, like what would be the first books you would, you would recommend yourself? Huh? Well, um, so it's tempting for me just to start naming off the classic books that are my favorites that I grew Mm. up reading, Mm. but they don't, they don't age quite as well. And so I don't know about that. So rather than rather than rattle off a bunch of Heinlein and Asimov and Clark, although I will say, um, but there, there's a few of them actually that I will that I would recommend. Uh, so uh, Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur Clark. It's good. Uh, it's a good science fiction story. It stands up in the modern day, even though it was written like almost 50 years ago, but it, it still stands up. And uh, it's it's just it's a good story. Um, but um, other, if you want some, if you want some uh, gateway drugs for science fiction, um, uh, well, okay. So there's uh, Ian M. Banks wrote the whole culture series of books, and actually the first book in that series is called Consider Phlebius, if I pronounce that right. It's either Phlebius or Plebius. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, 
And that's a good book, but I actually recommend um, a book called Player of Games, which is also part of that same setting, but is, in my opinion, a much more interesting book, and it will get you addicted to the culture, uh, to, to the culture series much, much more quickly. Hmm. Um, let's see. Another good one is uh, Ringworld, Larry Niven. Hmm. There are some areas in which it doesn't age well, and I'll just leave it at that socially. Um, but if you can look past that and treat it as a product of its time, the science is really interesting. It's really cool. It's, it's a really, it's a really fun story. Let's see. And uh, if you want to get more modern, um, of course, one of my favorite contemporary, you know, more recent books is Ready Player One. Mm. But I think it, you know, every, I think everybody's read that by now. Well, I think, I think <laughs> and, Ready Player Two might be. Out. Ready, Ready Player Two has just come out, but yeah. you know we're talking about getting people addicted. So you start sure. with Ready Player One. Absolutely. After that, they'll read Ready Player Two on their mm. own. Um, and then uh, uh, other more recent things is like pretty much anything by Blake Crouch. Um, mm. So Dark Matter, I like that a lot. Uh, Recursion, I thought it was great. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's some fabulous recommendations there. And I, again, you know, I'll, I'll link to those in the show notes so people find them very easily. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to say even Heinlein, I read um, Stranger in a Strange Land or reread it not, not too long ago. Yeah. And, you know, again, socially, it doesn't stand up great, but the bones of the story are really, I find really interesting. Yeah. See there. Uh, so yeah, ignoring. Yeah. Yeah. So Stranger in a Strange Land that that's kind of a what is it it has the napoleon dynamite effect mm. i don't know if you've heard that no. but uh, so the napoleon dynamite effect is um nobody rates the, the movie napoleon dynamite nobody gives it like a 5 out of 10 everybody either loves it or hates it mm. like no nobody says like yeah it was okay People are like, oh, it's terrible. I couldn't get through it. Or, oh, it was amazing. You know, And so I feel like Stranger in a Strange Land has that same effect. Either people think it's like this visionary masterpiece or other people think it's it's just like a, a, just a complete weird nonsense. And unfortunately, I'm in that latter category. I did not like that book. And um, uh, there's just so many wonderful Heinlein novels that I, that I tell people, okay, if you're going to get into Heinlein, you're going to hear about Stranger in a Strange Land. Don't don't go there first. Mm. Like, if you if you read a bunch of Heinlein and you love his stuff, then maybe go there. But for me, it was just kind of too esoteric, and and, and that even ignoring the the ways that it doesn't age well socially, it's just I don't know. It didn't work for me. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to poo poo it too much here. I just uh, there there's if you want Heinlein. If you want Heinlein, okay, Tunnel in the Sky, one of my favorite novels of all time, um, Red Planet, great adventure, um, f- fantastic, fantastic story. Moon is a Horse Mistress, one of the uh, one of the um, uh, inspirations for my own book, Artemis. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of fantastic Heinlein out there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's and there's some great places to start for for people as well. And so, if people are wanting to engage with with your writing um, and get updates from you, what's the best place for them to to stay in touch with what you're doing? Is it Twitter? Is it a website? What's the what's um, the, the best place? Yeah, just my social media, uh, Twitter and Facebook. 
Um, uh, Twitter is at Andy Weir author and Facebook is not surprisingly Andy Weir. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's funny, uh, like just like from, from typing and, um, an automatic response. I typed when I was writing up uh, the intro, it's, I kept coming Andy weird, Andy weird. Yeah. Cause the D keeps. I, I get that a lot just because mm. muscle memory. Yeah. It's strange. And it's like, I was kind of wigging out a little bit going, why is this happening? Maybe he is weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I certainly am. Uh, but also it's just muscle memory. You very rarely, if you're not me, you very rarely type the word weird and mm. don't follow it with a, you know, with a D. Well, one thing that happens a lot to me is when I'm starting a sentence with the word in, like, you know, in the beginning, whatever, and not that mm. I'm writing the Bible, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Say, if I'm starting a sentence with the word in, I almost always accidentally type int, I-N-T, huh? because for 25 years, I was a computer programmer. And um, de- uh, in in C and C plus plus variable declarations um, uh, for if you're declaring an integer, which is probably the most common thing you'll declare, you type int. So mm. you go like int, and then the name of the variable. And so I've typed int so many times in my life at the beginning of a line that now when I'm starting a sentence within, I'll end up just going int. I don't have a problem with it in the middle of a sentence because you don't really, when you're programming, you don't really type int in the middle of a line of code that often. There are specific cases where you will, but it's usually at the beginning of a line. So I often catch myself typing int. So <laughs> yeah, the muscle memory and like, and, and after I'm sure it's been a while since you've worked as a computer programmer um, as well. So it's amazing how that stuff sticks with you for a, for a long time you do something for a quarter century, it's not going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Too good. And so with, um, with Project Hail Mary coming out, you've obviously, you've finished. What's your schedule look like now? Are you... No, are I you should probably get started on that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes out May 4th, yeah. I should probably get, should probably get to work. <laughs> need to get, get cracking. But um, are, you, are you just, are you diving straight into a new book? Are you just having a break and, and doing media? Like how do you, what's your process in terms of once you've finished something and, and delivered it? Um, how do you move on from that or at least keep the buzz going until something else comes up? Well, uh, generally, uh, so I finished the first draft of uh, Project Hail Mary back in um, like February of 2020. And then, um, and then after editing and stuff, it was pretty much my work on it was done in March or maybe early April. Mm. And so what I should have done since then is started in on another book, you know, just kind of pipeline it. But what I've done instead is nothing. Um, <laughs> I've had, I've been having a really difficult time just motivating myself. And I think this is ridiculous. It's a pandemic. It's the perfect situation to write. I'm stuck inside anyway. I can't mm. go do anything distracting. I can't go, you know, out to dinner even. So why is this so difficult for me? And I don't know. And I've found out, and this is a relief, talking to pretty much every other author I know is in the same boat. They're just, it's, it's just very difficult for them to write. And uh, I'm, I'm speculating on that. And I think maybe a lot of ideas and thoughts come to us just from daily life being out and about. Mm. And when you're just stuck indoors with no new external stimulus all day, 
you don't, you, your creative juices don't get flowing. I don't know. Anyway, I, I did, I did start writing. Um, I did, I did, I, I have started working on, on my next novel, uh, but I'm, I'm moving on it just glacially slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the the silver lining there is we've got a brand new one in in Project Hail Mary, so I think your readers will be satisfied at least for the next couple of months, and then once they've finished it, then you'll start <laughs> getting angry tweets thrown at you. As yeah, well. <laughs> that's um, true. So on that, I will link to your Twitter and the best places to catch up with you. But thank you so much, Andy, for your time. Um, congratulations on the new book and um, really, really lovely speaking to you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Hi, this is Tim. I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. Also, a massive thanks to Johnny Hawken for the intro and outro music. Sarah Bervenich for the podcast artwork and the authors and publishers who make this show possible. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice, give us a shout out on social media, or leave a review on iTunes. If you'd like to reach out to me personally to say hi, you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tim underscore Hawken. That's at T-I-M underscore H-A-W-K-E-N. Or you can even head to timhawken.com and get a free copy of the first book in my Hellbound trilogy by signing up to my newsletter. For a roundup of all the episodes and recommendations, you can also head to timhawken.com forward slash genre wars. Thanks again for listening and happy reading. Frightened, need 
Push me 